I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connections, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. Another fantastic episode. My guest for today is Nicole Farnsworth. And I'm telling you, this is such an interesting episode. Nicole is a dietitian, and we talk about athletes and eating disorders. And there's a lot of information that's packed into this episode. So as usual, we're just going to jump right in. Okay, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. You all have no idea how excited I am to be sitting here today with Nicole Farnsworth. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you, Karen. I am honored to be here today. I just, I I love your energy. I love your smile. I love all the work you're doing. So, Nicole, you are a dietitian that is doing incredible work with athletes. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are than just that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you uh, for so much. And so I'll give uh, my little introduction uh, about my about me, if you will. Uh, so uh, I am a sports dietitian. I work at the uh, female athlete program and in the sports medicine and orthopedics department at Boston Children's Hospital. I also work as a clinical dietitian for Laura Moretti Nutrition, um, which is a private practice specializing working with athletes for nutrition performance, as well as eating disorders. So I have a dual specialty uh, in working with athletes on performance, and then also with eating disorders with that uh, intersection as well. So I definitely see, you know, many different kinds of athletes all the way from recreational to elite, and really just trying to help them fuel their bodies and and live their lives and perform at their best and honor their health. Um, And so it's I love what I do. I was a former athlete myself um, and competed in track and field and love being able to share my identity as an athlete and my experience and help athletes have, you know, their, their reach their goals in sport and life. Yeah. Nicole, there's so many things I want to talk about and, and, you know, I've worked with a lot of college athletes and to be quite honest with you, I have found it somewhat upsetting what athletes are going through. And please hear me when I say I'm seeing clients that have come to me because they're struggling. So I'm not saying every athlete has this experience. Let's not forget I'm talking to the ones who are struggling. So can you describe, Nicole, from your experience, what is it like 
being an athlete at that level when it comes to your body image, anxiety. I also want to be very clear. We're talking about your experience as a woman, but we're also going to, we're including men in this conversation. So Mm -hmm. go ahead. Absolutely. Well, I, um, I would love to speak about my experience. And I think something that I've really liked about the work that I do is I've been able to work with athletes and, you know, look back on my experiences in retrospect, because I think that really does illuminate so much about things. Cause in the, in the moment, like I, at my athlete identity was a huge part of who I was in college. And I think that that's a great thing, but it also is important to have other aspects of your identity. And so that's something that I tell all my athletes. Um, so to speak more to my experience, I definitely think it was um, incredible to be someone who is spending so much time at one thing. So in my work, I was easily 20 plus hours a week dedicated to sport, to training, to recovery. Um, and that doesn't even count the mental energy that was spent thinking about sport. So like if I knew I had a tough workout one day, I would be thinking about it and being like, okay, like I got to make sure I'm, you know, having, you know, not going too crazy with, uh, with chili fries before my practice, if I want to run well, um, or, or something along those lines. So there's a lot of mental energy. There's a lot of physical energy given to sport. And there's also a lot of differing, um, experiences and, and personalities. And I think I had different experiences year to year. And my, um, reason for that is I actually had different coaches every year and multiple coaches each year. I competed in the multi-events, so the pentathlon and heptathlon. So I was a jack of all trades and master of absolutely none, but it means that I worked with a lot of different people. And so I had a lot of different opinions on, you know, things from how to do the event to, you know, opinions on nutrition or not doing weight checks or not. Um, and so it was all so different year to year. And I thought that was so such an interesting thing to think about because it allowed me to have a lot of different experiences in that way. And also being on track and field, I had nearly a hundred teammates. So a lot of different people, a lot of different opinions, a lot of different cultures within different event groups. Um, I was part of an event group that was definitely focused on speed and strength and I think something we see sometimes in sports nutrition or in, you know, this work is that we see certain sports have more of a focus on leanness or lightness or race weight. Um, And so I didn't personally have that experience because of my event group, but I was aware that that could have been conversations happening in, in peers and in teammates. And I love that you had included in your discussion or in your introduction that we're, we're not leaving boys out of the mix or men out of the mix because In my experience, like I trained a lot with the men's team with certain events, and I actually found it, especially in retrospect, very interesting how the men's groups had very similar concerns to the women's team with regards to body and and weight and nutrition concerns when they came up. So I think looking back on it, it's been so interesting. And I I'm, I apologize if I'm not giving detail. I'd love for you to like ask me more if I can elaborate more on any of that. <laughs> First of all, do not apologize for anything. There's so many things that I didn't even think about. The fact of like what it would be like to have different coaches and having different influences. And we are also talking about as somebody working on a team sport or individually. So I guess just my question for you is 
when you are at that level of athleticism, is there a lot of pressure on your body to look a certain way when it comes to either A, just physically, because you said it was a sport where most people were very lean. And we also talked, well, I don't know why I just said we talk about, but also uniforms are very revealing. Were you involved at all? Or do you know what it was like for the ones that were doing weigh-ins? I, I will say I saw quite a few rowers in my practice. And that was jarring for me to understand the culture and the ritual and the weigh-ins and the dehydration. And, and, and I feel like I'm talking like vaguely, but, you know, one thing that stuck out in my mind is that, that the intention of sweating as much as humanly possible before a weigh-in, I mean, it is, and that's not even including the sport. This is just to prepare. So I know I just went off on a little tangent, but what what came up for you when I said that? I mean, I I've latched on right into what you're saying. I mean, it made me think of my because I've also worked with rowers in my work. Like even to get in the boat, there's so much work that has to be done that isn't related to the training at all. And I think that that translates to a lot of the sports. Um, maybe not as much in the non weight class sports. Um, you know, so I'm sure that like rowing and wrestling, like I know from my work that they're little, little different, a little bit of a, a separate culture, but in the same vein, in the same idea, you know, certain sports do have more emphasis on body weight, body shape, or have very revealing uniforms. Um, I was, you know, in my time when I was on the team, we, our uniforms were a little more conservative. We didn't have the buns, which is essentially like a bikini bottom running bottom. We didn't have that. We, we were, we ran in spandex. And at that point I had gotten comfortable enough with that, that I was okay with it. And again, I was part of an event group that was really focused on strength. Wasn't really thinking about weight, um, unless we were like trying to figure out what percent of body weight we needed to put on the bars for weightlifting. That's like as much as we really got into it for most of my time. But I do remember one of my, one of the semesters of my year, one of the coaches did want to do, you know, weight checks. And I still don't know why, to be honest, like, I'm not sure why it was important, but I remember like, even if it, even with it not mattering, I'd be like, why am I like, why am I nervous about this? It doesn't even, I don't even need to know. But it's incredible because it makes me think of many of my athletes nowadays, like this, there's, there is so much of a focus on weight in certain sports, even when it doesn't really matter. Um, I tell a lot of my athletes that are very focused on race weight that I'm like, I want you to think of your race weight as what your body is at when you're eating enough food and training at the level that you want to be training or that you're able to train at whatever that number is. And that can change. That's, that's where, that's where your body's going to be. And that's where you're going to perform your best. And so I, I find it, you know, the focus on the arbitrary numbers, it always makes it so hard for me. Cause I feel like there's so much mental focus and energy put on something that really isn't making or breaking one's performance for again, separate from rowing, uh, wrestling, the more weight class sports. How do you work with clients who do feel that they're, if they're in a lower weight, especially for something like running, that they are going to perform better and yet are coming to you because of 
physical situations that are happening. You know, you know, we we talked earlier about the female triad, which we'll get into. We talked about the relative energy deficiency in sports, which we'll get into. What what happens when when your clients say that they say, but Nicole, I run better at this weight. Right. Uh, And it's such a great question. It's something that comes up all the time. Um, Usually when I'm meeting with those, you know, patients or they're coming into my clinic or they're meeting with me nowadays virtually. So when I'm seeing them on Zoom, um, a lot of the reason they usually are coming in or usually in my evaluation, I'm just trying to get to know them and get to, I usually am like, look, this is very much a discussion where I want to just chat with you. And usually most of the time something comes up where they're, you know, experiencing fatigue, um, they don't get their period, they've had multiple stress fractures, and speaking to that low energy availability. Um, and you, even if they don't have that, and they're in a low energy available state, um, after I've kind of done my full evaluation, it's really a conversation of like, I hear you, you're you're racing well now and you might feel good, which in some cases, some dietary restriction for some reason can lead to that kind of elated feeling, which doesn't make it okay. And I tell my athletes that I was like, but this is going to have negative effects down the line, even if it's not having it now, a lot of athletes, most athletes do reach a point where they'll get injured. They'll get sick. They'll not be able to continue their sport because of trying to sustain a weight that isn't where their body wants to be. So I'm usually, usually I'm talking to someone who's already gone over that edge and they've already had those injuries, had those experiences and are really just wanting to get back into sport. But sometimes I'm meeting with an athlete that hasn't quite reached that edge yet. And so it's a lot of trying to talk them and talk to them, remind them that the body will only do so much before it really breaks down if they're holding at a weight that they're not meant to be at. The thing that's going through my mind right now is similar to when I say to clients all the time, you realize down the road, there's going to be a lot of medical complications and they're like, yeah, 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 Karen, doesn't matter. Talk to me when I'm there. Because same thing happened with me, Nicole. People, the doctors would say to my parents, like, she's going to be walking down the street and drop dead from a heart attack. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Wow. Is she, is this doctor dramatic? So I, I'm assuming you're, you're up against the same, I'm going to use the word mentality, like when you're sitting there saying to somebody, you are like, let, let's talk about right now, we're just going to talk about women. Let's talk about the female triad, because I don't think people really understand things like osteoporosis, like what that will do for somebody who, by the way, wants to be a, a lifetime athlete. It's not going to happen if mm-hmm. if they keep up with the eating disorder. So can you explain to listeners what the female triad is? And we'll start there. Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, so, and it's funny because I remember when I first learned about female athlete triad, I was in graduate school for nutrition and I remember seeing it and thinking, oh my God, this needs to be talked about. And this is why I went into this profession and this specialty is because of learning about this. So maybe I'll inspire some other future dietitian down the line with this. Um, So female athlete triad is very much this intersection and interplay between low energy availability, um, which I'll explain, and bone density and uh, 
uh, menstrual function. Um, so low energy availability is not getting in enough nutrition for what your body needs for exercise plus all other body function. So if you think about it, um, you we use as humans a ton of energy just to maintain homeostasis, just to do everything that we don't even have to think about. And that's an incredible thing when you think about it. It takes a lot of energy for our bodies to just sustain themselves. And then you put exercise on top of that. That's extra energy our body needs to use. When we're not eating enough to cover both of those, our body goes into, I like to use a smartphone analogy, it goes into low power mode. So if you think about what happens with a smartphone when you go into low power mode, it may shut off certain apps or it might slow down notifications. And so similarly, the body has its own version of that. It tries to conserve energy. And if you're already exercising, it's going to use energy for that. So the place that takes the hit are your body systems. And female athlete triad, the two systems that are connected there are menstrual function. So for your female athletes, they won't get their, um, they may not get their period. It may be really irregular, which could be not frequently enough or very frequently. And also bone health is connected. And so that can mean osteoporosis, osteopenia, um, frequent stress injuries, um, and low bone density in general. Um, and female athlete triad um, is actually more of a three-dimensional model. It's been expanded to be three-dimensional, meaning it exists on a spectrum. So while osteoporosis is the most severe kind of on that spectrum, there is also low bone density and bone issues that can occur well before that that are still really concerning, still cause for checking in. And usually if an athlete is coming into clinic and they have one of those, the idea is that you should screen for all three. So a lot of patients that come into me at Children's have seen one of our physicians, such as our medical director, Dr. Ackerman, and then she is sending them to me for that nutrition evaluation to see is low energy availability at play if an athlete has either the bone concerns or menstrual irregularities. How do you help a client understand because I I try to work from it from an emotional place as a therapist, but as the dietitian, how do you help a client who not only is coming in with stress fractures due to not fueling themselves adequately for their sports, but also continue doing their sports even with stress fractures and all the other injuries that happen because I I have clients I have clients that will come into my office wearing their boot and then they will go to practice and they will go and train they'll take the boot off so how do you how do you help somebody with that I mean, a lot of that, I definitely work in a team model. So like if I know an athlete's like planning to go to practice, I'm usually tapping in their doctor being like, Hey, are we, are we cleared to do this? <laughs> um, but I, I think a lot of it is really trying to use nutritional science and just the general science of low energy availability to bring up that model, that reasoning and seeing how an athlete responds to that. So this is actually a really good situation for me, an opportunity for me to see how much of an athlete's reason for if they do have low energy availability, how much of that is lack of knowledge, which does occur, or multiple food allergies or malabsorption, like those reasons are, I've seen it, like it happens, or is there disordered eating or an eating disorder? Because athletes, as, as anyone who works with athletes know, are highly coachable. 
and they just want to be the best athlete they can be. And I, if an athlete comes in and they just want that and they know, oh, if I eat more, I can do that. If there isn't any concerns with their relationship with food or body, a lot of the time they'll be like, just tell me what I need to do. And they go on and they do it and they start to get better. And that's, that is pretty much like, it seems a little more straightforward, sometimes not as straightforward, but more so if an athlete comes in and, and the thought of eating more is bringing up a lot more feelings and questions, then it's another, another story there. Right. And so it's even the science isn't, and might not be enough. Like it's not enough convincing. There's more that needs to be explored. And I think that's why it's so important for an athlete with, you know, athlete triad for relative energy deficiency in sport to work in a team model with all aspects of their health being addressed, medical, nutrition, and mental at the very least, um, to ensure that they're being as well supported as possible in case that is coming up, in case they are getting some, you know, funny thoughts and feelings around eating more, potential of gaining weight, um, potential in some cases of needing to gain essential body fat to support menstrual function. And, and sometimes that can be worth talking about and taking more time and going slower in order to figure out what, what some thoughts and feelings are about that. Cause that can be a big concern for some people. I think, and I don't want to make a global statement or universal, but just in general athletes, or at least again, the ones that I've worked with are very driven, very motivated, somewhat perfectionist because everything. And so it goes along with the eating disorder mind, right? That like strive for success, strive for thinness, strive for whatever. I also don't want to discount that bulimia and binge eating disorder is a big part of this because often starting from restriction, which then morphs into bulimia or binge eating disorder. So do you see that with your, with your clients? Mm -hmm. I do. I have, I've seen it shift. I've seen that ebb and flow and change in athletes that may have started with, with restriction and then have, have shifted over. And it's a lot of discussion around the interplay between in a lot of cases, restriction and binge eating and how they feed into one another. And really thinking about, you know, trying to visualize that for them as a cycle and seeing like, okay, like how can we interrupt that cycle? Can we give that a try? Because right now there is so much that's just feeding into each other. Um, so I've definitely seen that, that shift, that, that transition in, in athletes before. Um, and I love that you had mentioned how paralleled like the athlete mindset can be with the eating disorder mindset. Um, there, you know, that I'm thinking of that table in eating disorders in sport, um, by, uh, Sherman and Top said, and it's coming to mind because it is so true. Like a lot of the things that make an athlete Excel are also things that when morphed can actually feed into disordered eating or an eating disorder. Let's 
shift a little bit because I do want to make sure we incorporate males. So we're not just talking about amenorrhea and things such as that. So that's when we come into the relative energy deficiency in sports. So as you and I were talking before the episode started, this is now more encompassing or inclusive, shall we say. Can you explain that? Yes, absolutely. I would love to. So um, in 2014, uh, there was an expansion upon the female athlete triad um, to relative energy deficiency in sport. And this was put out um, by a group of professionals um, to show that there are more body systems that could be affected by energy availability and low energy availability than simply the bone health and the menstrual function. And so in the relative energy deficiency and sport model, you can see the female athlete triad triangle, but it's actually concentric circles around energy availability that include things like gastrointestinal function, um, growth and development, psychological function, which is a double arrow since we know that psychology and mental health can affect energy availability and vice versa. Um, different aspects like um, hormonal function um, for males and females. And I think that's the big piece about relative energy deficiency in sport is that males were included in this equation. Um, and in addition to the health concerns and the body systems that are affected, the other thing that the relative energy deficiency in sport model included was another parallel model with circles about how they suspect low energy availability affects athletic performance which thinks it parallel it makes me think of what we were talking about earlier which is like how do you talk to athletes about this they don't want to know about the health consequences some athletes may not care but i actually love showing this model to my athletes because while our the team and parents may be focused on the health consequences the athlete will pay more attention to the performance consequences cuz it's coming back to their what they want out of their sport. If they're, you know, focused on their performance and want to do the best they can, they may see that that might resonate more. That might matter more in the moment. And so if that's what I need to get buy-in in order to get them to eat more and help health, that's usually where I'm, where I'm leaning towards. How do you work with an athlete that due to low fuel, low energy, low body weight, whatever it is, and you say to them, you need to take time off of training. How do you work with that? How do the clients feel about that? Because, you know, I've said to, to, to clients before, I'm not saying you can never exercise again because that is unrealistic as well. But what I'm saying is, is that you need to put a pause on it. And when I worked at residential, I worked with a few clients that were Olympic athletes. and that's you're you're asking somebody to take a pause in not only something that they are passionate about but it's also a career or for a college student it is what they feel why they are at the university or whatnot so how do you help clients navigate through that it's so hard it is so hard i think you you touched on it exactly like what makes it so difficult. It can be a huge part of who, an, who someone is. So to ask them to step away from sport, that can be really difficult. Um, a lot of what I try to explain and what I try to talk about is that 
we need to think about low energy availability as an injury. And it may not present in a visible way. You're not, might not be using crutches or wearing a boot or going to PT a few times a week. It's a metabolic injury nonetheless. And so similarly to needing to rest and repair following something like a stress fracture, we need to rest and repair a metabolic injury. It still requires that. And so I tell, try to have my athletes kind of try to think about it in that way in order to see, you know, this is something that we can take a break from and come back to and like validate. Like, I understand this is really hard. This is such a big part of your life, but just like any injury, this rest, this chance to step away from it and just focus on nourishing your body can help you come back stronger when you're there. What, what are the sports? I, I, I thought I knew what sports had the highest incident with eating disorders. And then the more I was thinking about it and researching, I'm like, oh my God, there's so many. I, I, I don't know it as well as I thought I did. So what are the sports with the highest incidences and how do you help people that say, I still want to do it? I mean, there's a lot of things that can cause eating disorders, things like that. And then there are some that are a red flag situations. So what are those sports? Yeah. So prevalence of eating disorders tend to be higher in the sports that emphasize body shape, body thinness, body weight. So you're looking at things like distance running, you're looking at gymnastics, figure skating, dance, um, you're, you know, rowing, wrestling, the sports that really have that body emphasis to them or weight class emphasis to them tend to be higher though prevalence is still there in team sports. And, you know, I think that there's still constantly new data coming out about the, you know, different diff levels of eating disorders, um, in, in the varying sports, but those are the ones where they're, they're the highest for sure. Um, and I forgot the last part of your question. <laughs> so <if> you could, <laughs> I'm, I'm suddenly I was like, cause I, I already moved on to another question in my head. I'm like, uh, God, Nicole, I can't remember either. So for the sake of this conversation, we're just going to keep going. But That's good. who knows? Maybe it'll come back to us. Because what I was thinking was, I don't know if people understand why wrestlers are prone to eating disorders. And I'm wondering if you can expand on that. Ah, absolutely. So wrestlers compete in weight classes. And so there are different weights classes. Um, and basically to compete at a weight class, you need to be under the maximum weight for that class. And the idea with wrestling is that you want to be as close to that with being under as possible so that you have the most strength. Cause a lot of it is a strength power ratio. We see this in rowing too. So what athletes try to do is they try to be as strong as they can while being as light as they can. And so they often will train to bulk up and be at a higher weight and then have a cut period leading up to a weigh-in where they're, you know, might be changing their nutritional intake, but then right before they're also doing things like manipulating their fiber intake, manipulating their fluid um, balance by sweating um, or by, you know, altering that. And then after they weigh in, they're going to do different things nutritionally to try to recover from that. Cause that's a huge, for many athletes can be a huge shift in weight in a very short amount of time. So 
all of that focus on body and weight can certainly be a risk factor, um, factoring into development of, of, you know, eating pathology. And I think it's also, you know, the pieces, a lot of these athletes, it's a question of like, what weight class is appropriate. They may try to drop down to a weight class that their body really shouldn't be trying to obtain. Um, and so that can lead to some, you know, eating behaviors that can be very restrictive, very limiting. Um, and so sometimes it can be very concerning for development of eating disorders. I, I don't know why my, my brain just went here and I'm going to ask you a question and it could be very provocative or controversial. And I don't mean to place blame on anyone that is never the intention of the podcast, but what roles do coaches have in an athlete? Because again, I'm just speaking from the experience that I've had with some of my clients that it's sounded, and again, please everyone be clear, this was the client's report. It sounded like there was almost encouragement to do certain things to get to a certain weight and a lot of penalizing if you were not. For example, I was told that, uh, that in one sport, if you were over your weight, if you were over the certain weight, you had to spend the day by yourself working out. You couldn't work out with the team. You had to go into a separate training room. So by the way, these are, these are pretty, um, these are pretty big examples. So, but, but again, that's what shows up in your office. It's not the ones that don't have these experiences. So how do coaches play a part and how can coaches, because I'm sure coaches play a wonderful part in, in an athlete's life. So I don't just want to be like bad, bad, you know what I'm saying? So right, right. what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, first my heart breaks for that poor athlete. I mean, that is just even thinking about like, if I, a lot of what I loved about sport was community. So to be working out by oneself, to be like relegated to a separate room, I would, I would be so sad. And yeah. uh, my gosh, my emotions. So coaches, as you said, play such a, an important role in an athlete's life. Like my coaches in a lot of ways, I spend more time with them sometimes than my parents, <laughs> especially in my younger years. Like even thinking about my high school coach, like he's, he's like my quote unquote uncle, like I'm still close with him to this day. Coaches have this amazing ability to be a role model, a confidant and a guide. Um, and I think a lot of the important thing that coaches need to realize and know is how important their role is and how much their discussion or not around certain topics can create a team culture, which is another issue, but also is impact one-on-one -on -one relationships. So I've also seen the kind of negatives where a coach either has made a comment or created a team culture that has furthered um, eating disorders, disordered eating behaviors. And then it has been because sometimes because the team culture can be that way, it's become more widespread than even like a few athletes, suddenly a large portion of a team. At the same time, I have been fortunate enough to work with so many coaches that have the understanding of how to talk to their athletes. And so if they see something we're collaborating with them. Like I'm, I'm chatting with them. I'm trying to figure out how to help their athlete. They're trying to figure out how to help their athlete. 
you know, address their relationship with food. Um, so I, I think it is multifactorial. It's not always the coaches that are cause quote unquote causing an eating disorder, but they certainly can play an important role in influencing how an athlete views food and body and that connection to performance. And so I think coaches would benefit if they aren't already getting it from training around how to have conversations around those things or when to look, when to detect flags and refer to professionals who know how to manage those concerns. I think some coaches are so petrified of touching that topic that they avoid it completely, which is also not helpful. That's an interesting concept that I didn't think about. Do coaches get any training in eating disorders, mental health, things to look for in their athletes? I wonder if it's different program to program. I feel like there are coaches that seek it out. And I bet the ones that do, even if it's like independent of their primary training, are probably going to be more aware of it and more um, more engaged in that. Um, but I'm not actually sure if there's like specific requirements or, you know, things that need to be done. And if that's all coaches or sport to sport um, in order to, to have that training, have that know-all. Um, but I have given seminars and lectures to coaches where I have brought that in very intentionally to say, I want you to just be aware of this and like, look, here are the signs to look for. Here's like ideas for where you could refer to resources so that you know, if this happens and it's more like when, not if, you have some confidence in, in how to approach it or at least know to who to reach out to for support or help. I also want to point out that we're focusing on athletes today. I, I, this, is, this is not to demonize the world of athleticism. There, there are many cultures. There's sororities and fraternities. There's, you know, social groups. There's many cultures or, or communities that have a mentality like this. So I do want to be very clear because all of a sudden I'm like, I feel like we're just demonizing athleticism. And, and I'm wondering if we could just switch for a minute and talk about what are the positive aspects of being an athlete? What are the positive aspects about being someone? I have a client who her working through her, she she's now training for triathlons and marathons, and that actually really fueled her recovery because she recognized she could not do this unless she was feeding herself adequately. So let's turn it around a little bit, Nicole. And, and what are your thoughts there? Oh, so many great benefits to being an athlete, to participating in sport. Uh, I could, I'm going to only probably be able to list a few, but I feel like it's an endless list and every athlete's going to have a different, different answer. But I think community is a huge piece of it. My closest friends, my husband all met through collegiate track and field. Like that is, it's been such a great way. It's a way to connect with people. Um, it also, you know, can part deliver so much in the realms of like self-confidence in ability and self-efficacy, like a lot of the amazing things that an athlete can do, um, can help kind of reach out of their identity outside of sport, reach out of the things they do outside of sport. Um, and like you said, it's also a great carrot for those who are struggling, like getting back to sport is such a wonderful motivator. And for many athletes, that is exactly what they needed. 
because they want to be in sport. They want to be, that is a, maybe, maybe it's the place they feel like they belong. Maybe it's the place that they want to be with their friends again. Um, it could be just, you know, they love competing and that helps burn that energy for them. Um, so there are so many great things coming out of, of, you know, athletics out of sport. Um, and I, I think there are so many positive and I know we had focusing on some of the, the darker side of sport. Um, but I think that, that it is part of that two-sided, you know, aspect. And there are still a lot of great things to be experienced as an athlete. I, I, I say this, I'm, I'm not an athlete, but I'm saying as someone, I can imagine that there are tremendous positives about being an athlete. And it's just like anything else we talk about that it's it's not about what someone is doing. It's how the eating disorder can take from it or how the eating disorder can latch on and and then it just complicates everything. And by the way, I've had younger clients that are in high school sports and the sports are so important to them that they follow the meal plan. And I say, listen, I don't want you to stop volleyball. I don't want you to stop track. I don't want you to. And I can't permit it. I can't, you can't get my blessing unless you're following what the dietitian is telling you and you're going for the weigh-ins. And that is sort of like a healthy negotiation. Like they don't have to take it. They don't have to take the feedback but then they can't play the sport. And the sport has socializing, just like you said, their friends are there. It is a really good way to get rid of, you know, energy, whether it's nervous energy or just energy from sitting in classes all day. It's it's a good way to learn how to negotiate with peers. I mean, there's so many positives when it comes to sports. Absolutely. There was something... I was just going to ask you, give me a second. I do this every week and I apologize. It will come to me and I, I've lost it. So we're going we're gonna to have to come back to it. Have you worked with parents? This is, this is totally going in a different direction. Have you worked, I'm going to say with clients that are professional athletes, whether it's through collegiate or whatnot. And their parents are not understanding that they're struggling with an eating disorder and that the recovery needs to come before the sport. I have, and, and it can be very challenging, especially depending on age. Um, and when we're starting to think about things like needing to consider higher level of care, um, where parents may or may not need to be involved. And it's so, it can be very difficult when we have an, when there's an athlete coming in to, to meet with me, that problem might already like have a sense of disbelief and not feeling like they have a problem or are quote unquote sick enough to need additional care, continuing care. And so having a parent who doesn't believe that, that can be incredibly invalidating to the experience and increasingly difficult as the provider to, you know, really push for what the athlete needs from a treatment perspective. It can be such a difficult thing. And I think a lot of that is continuing to like, try to understand and try to converse with the family, trying to work with them um, as much as they're able to do so to help, you know, under tell them like your, 
your your child is is going through something right now and the sport is not as important as what's going on and i think that's a hard thing it's navigating that relationship with the athlete identity and sport and recognizing like i get it it's important i don't want to take you out of sport if i don't have to just like you said karen but it's also recognizing when it's time to step away when it's time to do more to treat disordered eating or an eating disorder to really navigate that and say like, this is going to help someone become a better athlete. If they can get to the other side of this and learn to trust and fuel and nourish their body appropriately. I've also worked with family systems where through more exploration, we start recognizing that the whole family has an interesting relationship with food and exercise. And I've had to say to parents, I know you're an athletic person. I get it. I know that you're exercising every day. You're running every day. You're mountain biking every day is not going to help your child when you're telling them they are not allowed to do it and you're doing it. When you're telling them they have to eat a certain way and you're eating a different way. It it brings up a lot in families, especially those families that are outdoorsy, athletic, which by the way, I did not grow up in. I mean, like I've had clients and been like, you know, they're saying like how they're going to certain places and then they're going to go on runs there as a family or hiking or whatnot. And I'm thinking, God, my family just went away and we sat at the pool. Like we we are, we are the opposite <laughs> yeah. of an athletic family. I'm like, what is that like? But then you also have to say, you have to change the culture of vacations, everything. Mm-hmm. And I also, what I say to parents though is this is not forever, but this is for now. <gasps> have you come up against or across situations like that? I have. And I, it, it's amazing how much that can open up that greater conversation around, again, thinking about the, like the multifactorial influences on, on someone's relationship with food and body, like that can certainly be a, a big part of it. And I love to ask about, I always like to tell my athletes, like, tell me about your family culture. Like, who do you eat with? What is everyone doing? And I actually would say a good amount of the time we'll have, you know, I'll have an athlete who's like, oh, like my family's super active or, you know, we all eat a certain way and and things like that. And that can certainly feed into it. And I'm with you. Like it, it might be that things need to change. And also I try to talk to my athletes about, Hey, like you are 15, 16, 17 years old for just examples. Um, you're going to be very eating differently from your parents. Like that is very much the expectation where you are in your life right now, we are supporting your growth and development. We're supporting the work here and now. And so I actually also have, in in addition to wanting to address the family culture around food, I'm also talking to the athlete to say like, Hey, I want you to focus on your plate too, and try to step away from that comparison trap to how your family may be eating a little bit to think about like, how can we focus more on, on you? How can we help that? Nicole, it's so it's so interesting. Can you can you just speak just because I adore you and I adore your colleagues, Laura Moretti and Kate Ackerman? Can you just say a little bit about the the female athlete program through Boston Children's and and the work you do with Laura? 
Yes. Uh, um, I love the work I do and the people I work with. So this is such a fun question. So the female athlete program was started by Dr. Catherine Ackerman um, as her, you know, vision of what she could see was needed for female athlete sports medicine care. So she um, was a national rower. Um, and so she, while in medical school, so no big deal. Um, and <laughs> she saw concerns that needed to be addressed. And so when she was through her medical training, this was a very much a passion of hers. And so she has brought on professionals to work on female athlete care. And it's kind of, it's an approach that is clinical care and research. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to be a part of that team since 2018. I actually visited for a week as an intern in 2017 with Laura Moretti. And I was like, I love this. I want to be a part of the team. Whenever you need a second dietitian, you let me know. And luckily they, they did. Um, but the great thing about it is that it is multidisciplinary. So there, there's medical help, there's nutritional support, there's a mental health component. And not only are we working together as a unit, we're also very much engaged in the community. And so we're referring out as we need to, to other professionals that we know want to work with athletes or do work with athletes. We're very much wanting to just make sure our athletes are being seen and being addressed in this multidisciplinary manner. And in addition to the clinical care piece, there's also a very big research component because there is a dearth of studies in female athletes. And so until we further understand how the female athlete physiology is, is different, we're not treating the female athletes in the most optimized way. There's there, we can't just shrink it and pink it um, when it comes to sports medicine care. Uh, so a lot of it is also like very motivated by, by the research and wanting to fund that. And so we actually just wrapped up our biennial female athlete conference a few weeks back and thanks, thankfully to all the attendees and the um, exhibitorships, we have more funding to use to further the female athlete research that we do in our clinic. Um, I should say we see male athletes as well. So I think the theme is like, I know we're talking a lot about female athletes, but male athletes are, are important too. So we do see them in clinic, but the majority of our patients are the female athletes. And then the work I do with Laura Moretti Nutrition is basically an extension of this. We are, it's a dual specialization for all of the dietitians in her group practice in nutrition for performance, as well as eating disorders. And so we'll see athletes for performance for and for eating disorders, but we'll see all athletes in, in all stages of life. And it really is just focusing on how do we address their health, performance, and relationship with food. I want to say that I've attended the Female Athlete Conference, and it is an incredible community. And by the way, you are not just talking about eating disorders, and so there's there's so much. I leave there, I feel like I'm floating on air, like air has just been pumped into my body of just community, respect, passion, those conferences, I swear, they I, I feel high for, for weeks and weeks and weeks because you can feel the devotion and the dedication and really the desire to work with this population. And it's just amazing, Nicole. I just I just wanted to sort of add that just for my yeah. own experience. Oh, I appreciate that. I, I feel the same way. I you you named it perfectly. Like that 
feeling of uh, just like lightness and mode and like also like you get a fire lit under you like I'm like yes let's do exactly. this what's next like <laughs> you you become infused with light and power you're that's exactly it that's exactly yeah. it yeah it's it's magical like unlike any other conference that I've ever been to it truly is it truly is and I was surprised not in and I don't mean to sound that as as insulting but I was surprised because I'm so used to just going to conferences that going to conferences that just focus on eating disorders. And this focuses on more. And I was like, I need to learn this about athletes. I need to learn this about the body. And the. it was just, anyway, I'm going off on my own tangent. But Nicole, I, I hate to say this, but we are starting to come to a close. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to share with listeners before I ask your final question? I mean, I guess the only other thing that I like to tell all of my athletes, and I, I feel like a lot of sports dietitians that work at this intersection have a statement very similar, but I think it's a good message is that food is fuel. You hear that a lot in sports nutrition, like food is fuel. Um, but I like to say food is fuel and so much more like food is social, it's cultural, it's community, it's connection. It is so I think it's important for all athletes to recognize that, that like food is not only going to be a piece of performing and health, but it's actually a part of, of life. And I love that about what I do and that helping athletes expand that definition if it's been narrowed. I love that you say that. I'm just smiling because it's so true. It's so true. Mm-hmm. All right, Nicole, before I let you go, I have to ask your final question, which is Nicole. If someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? It's funny because I'm like, oh God, what would it say? Like, I want to (laughs) know. I mean, if they were talking about me in the professional sense, they'd probably say what I just said. Like I tell every athlete, food is fuel and dot, 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 um, so much more. So I feel like that could be like, Nicole told me this, and then it would be that quote right there. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing to have written about on a bathroom stall. So I absolutely love that. I agree. (laughs) Nicole, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for being on the show. You and I were talking before we started airing this that I remember the first time we met in New York at a conference. And so I just, I'm really grateful. So thank you. Thank you for having me again. I'm so, so glad I had the opportunity and so honored to be here. And I'm I'm so glad too for our future connections. My pleasure. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast signup 
to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.